Welcome to Steam Powered, where I have conversations with women in Steam to learn a little bit about what they do and who they are. I'm your host, Michelle Ong. My guest today is Dr. Evelyn Deplazes. Evelyn is a biophysical and computational chemist who is a Chancellor's Research Fellow at the University of Technology, Sydney, and together with other researchers, runs the UTS Membrane Biophysics Group. Join us as we talk about her journey to computational chemistry, her research on honey and spider venoms in membrane biophysics, academic career development, and yoga. Hello, Evelyn. Thank you for joining me today. It's really great to have you speaking with me on Steam Powered. And yeah, so how have you been? Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, yeah. Yeah, not too bad. I mean, you know, COVID has, has essentially affected most of us doing research, but um, because I'm a computational chemist, it sort of has a bit less of an impact on me while it, it still has an impact, particularly on my, on my students that are in the lab. But yes, it is a bit less of an impact for me. So how did you get into computational chemistry to begin with? Yeah, so I didn't know computational chemistry existed in, in, in when I did when I did my you know chemistry in high school. Like most people, for me, chemistry was something that happens in the laboratory. But I really always loved loved chemistry. For me, I, I loved thinking of, of of things in molecular terms, thinking of you know how does a water molecule interact with another small molecule. That for me, and and it's something that just intuitively made sense to me to think of the world in molecular terms. I don't know. It's just something that came easy. And then I realized um, in high school, I really liked the sort of mathematical part of chemistry. I like doing the writing out the reactions and calculating reaction rates. Um, so when it came time to choose something in university, chemistry was always something that I knew, okay, I want to study chemistry. But the computer science was actually more um, something, the idea of programming, I really liked the idea of learning how to program. I didn't actually realize that we later could combine these things. It was literally just a pure interest. I studied, so I did a double degree in chemistry and computer science. And then during that double degree, uh, I got a bit exposed to people doing research at, at that university. And I realized, oh, actually, there is such a thing called computational chemistry, where you are essentially instead of going into the laboratory and doing chemistry, you, you use computer simulations to describe how molecules interact with each other. So you essentially use the principles of basic physics to describe how molecules interact with each other. And, if, and you can then use these simulations to understand properties of matter, anything from materials to biological systems to how drugs interact. And that, that sounds fascinating to me because I was able to, to combine programming with my understanding of, or my fascination of chemistry in the molecular world. Cool. So, yeah, you were telling me that, well, you started your double degree at Curtin a bit later than everyone else. So, yeah, tell me about that journey. I was 24, yeah, when I started my undergrad, which is by Australian standard about, what, five, six years more later than most people. Um, well, part of that is that because I wasn't, I didn't grow up in, in Australia, I didn't grow up in Perth. Um, I, I grew up in Switzerland, in a town just outside of Zurich. And I went to um, high school in, in, in Zurich, in the, t in, in the city itself. 
And then when I was in high school, about six, when I was 16, I was very sick. And I, had, I struggled very much with eating disorders and post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, and I went to, I had to go to hospital for about six months. I came back to high school and had to redo that year. Unfortunately, I, I relapsed and had to go back to hospital again. And after the second time in hospital, I decided I don't want to redo the same year the third time. So I essentially dropped out of high school. So I didn't actually finish the equivalent. I didn't get my high school certificate. Um, and so I had to find an alternative of getting some form of training. So I decided to do an apprenticeship. And I actually worked as a car electrician, of all things. So I was a car electrician. I worked in spare parts. So I was um, selling spare parts for cars. Um, and this is where I met my partner. So my, my partner, still my partner, 21 years, <laughs> 21 years later. Um, and he was a um, person, he was Swiss, but he lived in Perth. And I moved to Perth. I was literally, I was 21, fell in love and decided it sounded exciting to move to the other side of the world. And I still remember my mom telling me that I'd probably come back with a broken heart two years later. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. So we arrived in Perth and, and, and I had to reevaluate again. Well, what do I do? Do I find a job? And it was really a chance encounter that I had dinner with, with our then neighbours and someone said, and I was mentioning that I always wanted to go to university, but unfortunately, I didn't finish my high school. And that person said, well, as far as I know in Australia, even if you don't have a high school diploma, you can just do, you can do an entry test. And if you pass that test, um, you, you can study. There's certain things you can't study, but she was pretty sure you could do that for science. So I went, oh, that sounds exciting. So I, I, I thought I had a second chance. And um, I literally went to uh, Curtin and University of Western Australia and inquired. And yeah, it was like that. So they said, you, you just have to pass <laughs> entrances. But it, that also meant that I had to go and re, re, relearn a lot of things. You know, by then I was 23, 24. It had been six, eight years since I was at high school. And I had to pass an entry test in math, biology, chemistry, and English. And, and all of that in English. And English is not my first language. So last time I studied science was in German. So I spent three months in the local library um, getting books from, um, from high school, getting high school, high school textbooks on science and English, and studied for about two, three months and set that set that exam and passed it somehow. <laughs> I just passed the English, just passed, but that was enough. And and then I was able to enroll into a double degree. So I was I was very lucky that um, I was very lucky that I realized I had this what I call second chance because yeah I was I don't know it sounds a bit strange to think of myself as a high school dropout, but it's not that I, I was asked to leave or I wasn't or I wasn't getting good enough grades, but just because my health wasn't really that bad at that stage, I just was not physically and mentally capable of, of, of finishing my high school. And That's it right. was great that I was able to go back to study and then later still become a scientist. That's brilliant. Like that that's just like it just shows how much you can achieve when yeah. You've got that commitment to make that change for yourself, yeah. 
you need to have a commitment and you need to obviously put in the hard work. But I think it's also, it is possible. Just because you didn't finish high school doesn't mean um, you can't study something else. And, and, and I think it's to some degree, if I would have gone to, to university straight out of high school, I probably would have only studied chemistry and not computer science. Because it was really when I was working as a car electrician and later as technical assistants uh, in engineering companies and banks, where I got into contact with programming and computer programs and microchips. And that's when I realized, oh, I really like programming. I like, I like computer systems. So it really, that experience, and even these days, that experience when I'm in the laboratory and work with physical chemistry equipment, the fact that I could solder, solder something, the fact that I know how an electrical circuit works, the fact that I know how technical equipment works comes in very handy when you're a physical chemist. So I don't think it was a waste. It was a deviation. But you, you get where you are by just you know, meandering your way through and making the best decision you can at the moment. Well, it just all contributes to the experience and to your knowledge. Yes, it does. It does contribute. And I mean, I got really good. I did. I got a very good education, a good, very good apprenticeship. Um, I think probably the most fortunate I feel is having grown up in a country where education is incredibly valued and it's free. You know, degrees are free, apprenticeships are free. Um, it is, education is, is accessible and it's valued. And I think that for me was, 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 I was very fortunate to grow up in a country like that. So with your work, what are you focusing on at the moment for your research? So I suppose I have two projects that I'm working on at the moment. One of them really is focused on understanding how we can use venom peptides. Or So peptides are compounds found everywhere in nature. And the peptides that we work on, the compounds are found in venomous animals. So particularly in spiders. So spiders have venom that is essentially a large cocktails of different chemical compounds and a lot of these compounds have very interesting properties properties that you can use to make uh, pharmaceuticals and drugs so some of these compounds can kill cancer cells some of these compounds have antimicrobial properties some of these compounds can actually interfere with your nervous system um, so you you can use these compounds as as a basis to understand how to make new drugs, for example, to treat neurological disorders um, or how to kill bacteria to make new antibiotics. And, and to understand how these molecules work, we need to understand in many cases how they work, interact with the membranes. We need to understand how they interact with cell membranes. And so this is the kind of research that we do, both in the laboratory and in computer simulations. We try to understand how these compounds in the spider venom actually interact with, with the surface of cells or with membranes so that we can then or other people can use that knowledge to make pharmaceuticals to make drugs out of it and the other project is really more um, related to um, understand how compounds found in honey so again it's a natural resource um, honey we know it's antimicrobial um, it is used as a wound dressing treatment in clinical applications, um, for example, to treat burn, burns. Um, but we don't understand exactly how, how the mechanism works. But again, there is a connection to the cell membranes. There is compounds in the honey that have properties that, that may, means that they're 
They're somehow disrupting membranes, they are interacting with cell membranes. And we want to understand how does that relate to their ability to kill bacteria? So how does the membrane interaction of the honey, of not just the full honey, but also the chemicals in the honey, how does that relate to their ability to be antimicrobial? So there I work together with people that do bacterial work. So I have collaborators here at, um, at the I3 Institute at UTS. So um, she works with bacterial cells. So she looks at the antimicrobial aspect and I then look more at the, what we, the biophysical side of it where I use the, the compounds found in honey or the honey itself and I do experiments with artificial membranes. So I don't usually work with the full bacteria, but I work with artificial membranes. But these membranes are close enough to mimic the bacterial membrane so that we have a model system where we can control the composition of the membrane, we can control what we add to the membrane. Because again, honey is a complex mixture, so we need to test the different components in the honey. And in my system, we can control the complexity of the experiment so we can learn really fundamentally what's going on. But with my collaborator, we can bring it back into cell system because at the end of the day, what matters is can you kill the cell or how do you kill the cell? Yes, it's just interactions. Yes. So how do you, like, what, what is the artificial membrane? How do you create an artificial membrane? So membranes are actually made, a cell membrane is, a, is, is made out of loads and loads of components. But if you really want to simplify it, it's essentially a lipid bilayer. So lipids are essentially a chemical, uh, it's a chemist's way of saying fat molecules. <laughs> so lipids are essentially fat molecules and they don't like water. So they arrange themselves in a lipid bilayer which means they arrange themselves in, in something that looks a bit like a sheet. And then that's a bilayer, a lipid bilayer. And then in the real cell, there is lots and lots of different proteins in it. Now, we can't, as chemists, that is too much complexity for me, as I like to say to the biologists. So we <laughs> actually make an artificial membrane out of lipids. So we buy lipids from a chemical company, and we know exactly what lipid it is. Uh, so we can mix different lipids and we can make lipid bilayers or simple artificial membranes. So when I say artificial, they are still real in the laboratory. They're made out of real lipids, but they are artificial because they're essentially a model membrane. They are a very simple version of what, what the cell membrane really looks like. But the benefit of that is because you know exactly what's in it, you can then control the composition and do experiments where you go, well, if I add more of lipid A, this happens. If I add more of lipid B, this happens. And then you can start understanding bit by bit which lipid has what effect, let's say for the honey, which lipid is important for the honey to work on the membrane. And slowly you build up the complexity to hopefully get closer to what the membrane looks like in the real cell. Because the cell membrane is too complex to figure out individually what is going on with each different component of the membrane. So we make them in the laboratory by mixing different lipids, essentially. So how much of the work for that would you 
do in simulations with the computational side of it and how much like how do you balance how much is simulations versus physical uh, so I, I think well ideally you would balance by what is you would balance by what is best suited or which which answer you want most of the time in practice it comes down to how much funding do you have for what project and how many students are interested in doing what. So it's not easy to find students that are interested in doing computational work. I find that, like most people in my field would say, it's, it's harder to find students that are interested in doing computational chemistry than lab work. And I think it's not, it's just because they don't know it. They haven't been exposed to it. So most of the time the computational work I do myself or post of mine, um, while the lab work is more done by one of the students and interns, and sometimes um, myself. So I would say at the moment it's about 30% lab work and 70% computational work. Um, but at the end of the day, you try to merge them by, you know, you, you make, you do a simulation, you make a prediction, you try to go back to the lab and see whether it works. The other way around, you do something in the laboratory you think you know what's going on, but you don't really have to, you can't really tease it out at the molecular level with experiments. So you go back and you, you design a simulation that would answer that particular question. And this is why I like doing both, because I can actually design experiments and simulations that, that correspond to each other and directly answer the question that I want to answer. Yeah, so definitely. So you can you can check you can compare your theories wow. in both methods for uh, yeah for confirmation, but also expand on each side. You can expand on each side. And I think what's particularly important um, is something that many people might not realise that, but in science, often what gets published is only what worked. Yeah. And if I want to test or validate a prediction or simulation, what doesn't work is equally important. Yes. And that often doesn't get published. So if I only rely on published work, I sometimes, you have a guess that the way it's written, you go, oh, I'm probably sure that that didn't work, but you don't know. Unless you know the author, you contact them, you don't know. So when, but when you do the experiments and the simulation both yourself, you actually both know the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yes. You know exactly what works, what doesn't work, and where does it completely fail. Yeah, because you need to know the failures in order to be able to fill the gaps in knowledge. I will always remember one of the most experienced computational chemists that I know. He's just retired um, from a professor, uh, from being professor in Switzerland. And he, at conferences, always said to the postdocs, look, you've shown me all these wonderful um, applications where your model works. Show me where it breaks. That's when you learn the limitation of the model, and that's where you can push and make it better. You need to know where it breaks. Where does it exactly. fail to make a feasible prediction? And quite often that doesn't get published. So I prefer I prefer to either work with experimentalists closely so I can influence the experiment they do or ideally I do the experiment myself. Yeah, and you know, that, that's interesting because, yes, it is true that they only publish what worked but what? in order to ensure that you don't reinvent the wheel when you're trying to expand on that work you need to know where not which paths not to retread yeah exactly and i think that is that is a, that is a bit of a problem these days that you know 
particularly when you do a PhD, I can tell you that most of most of the stuff that gets published is what worked. Yeah. But in the thesis, there probably will be loads of things that didn't work. Yes. And that could, if you work in that particular field and you want to develop new methods, what didn't work can be very valuable for you. And when it doesn't get published, it's, it's, just more, it's just less likely that you come across it. So, yes, you're inventing the wheel. Yeah, and considering how difficult it is to get funding and how resources are so tight, you know, it seems very wasteful to not be able to have that additional information to make sure that you're not wasting the grant money and the resources and yeah, the people yeah, that you've and, got. And, and there is people that try to... Um, find new methods. There is people that um, work in the field of open science, where essentially the idea is rather than just publishing small packages of what worked, you're essentially writing up all your results in a repository, um, and you you write up everything, even things that didn't work. And people can comment on it. It still involves uh, a peer review, because peer review yes, is very important for science. So it still involves peer review, but it's not that selection or that pre-selection of publish what works, but publish your actual full experiment and all the results, peer review it, and then publish and put it in the repository where people can look it up, all the protocols, all the data sets, what worked, what didn't work. Um, so there's a, lot of, um, uh, there's a lot of initiatives in the field of open science that try to sort of counteract that that um, that drive to only publish positive results. Yeah, and that's an excellent initiative because yeah. you know people will want to access all of this data, and it can be political. But yes. you know, if you're truly about the science and about trying to push the boundaries of human knowledge, you know, you need that information. And these days, we have the technology to share. You know, I can I can upload large data sets to repositories, and you can get digital um, object identifiers, you can get DOIs for it, which, which means you can refer to it as your work. So you can, you, know, you can, on your CV as a researcher, you can still say, look, I've did all of that and deposited in those repositories. So you can still make, make, it, make it clear that it's your contribution and it's attributed to you. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, such a good initiative to have. Yes, and, and a lot of researchers are pushing for it. It becomes political, as you said, because the way we get assessed as researchers and whether we get jobs or not often clashes with that, with that putting things into repositories rather than publishing in big journals. Yeah, yeah, massive problem in academia. So because you're working on cell membranes, that sounds like you're covering not only you know, computer science, you're also covering the chemistry side, but do you also need to do, do you, how much do you need to understand about the biology? Yeah, so that, that is really my, my work is really at the interface of biology and chemistry. So I'm trained as a chemist traditionally, but I actually end up usually working in the school of biomedical science or the school of biological sciences, because the problems I work on really are biological systems. So yes, I take a computational and a chemical approach or a chemistry approach because I actually study things at the very molecular level, you know, individual drug molecules. But the, the systems that I work on really much are biology. So I had to learn a lot of biology. You know, I started off as a chemist, as an analytical physical chemist, 
with a lot of computer science into it. And then slowly, gradually, over 10 years, I've picked up more and more biology. First of all, to do my own research, but also just to work with my collaborators, because my collaborators tend to, tend to be more the biology people. So I then, you know, I have a meeting with them and they explain me their data. And at the first, when I first started this, it went all over my head. I was like, literally, I had to ask so many what felt like stupid questions, going, what does that mean? Uh, can you explain that? I don't know what that means. <laughs> or you go literally go to Wikipedia and have to look up basic principles because I don't know the biology. But I think that's part of why I like being at the interface of different disciplines because you constantly learn, you constantly learn new things. So a lot of it, when because you have to branch out into these other disciplines, is it informal learning or do you actually incorporate structured learning into that as well to expand your knowledge? I suppose at the start, it was a bit more structured learning during my PhD. It was more structured learning in terms of, you know, you go and read the textbook uh, or you go and watch, uh, the, you know, YouTube videos on, on, on where people recorded lectures. And with time, you have enough of the basics so you can pick up things as you go. So it's really not much structure. But at the moment, it really is more like me asking my collaborators or reading a paper on a very specific question. I've got enough basic understanding to pick up what I need on the fly. That's great. There's just so many opportunities to just keep learning, as you said. It's brilliant. Yeah, and I think that's probably one of the things I love about my job. And I think it's one of those things that many, many academics, I would say, share. You, you just It's that continuous challenge of learning i just love learning new stuff i love learning i love coming across a new system or a new experiment and having to go and look up well how does it work or you know having to learn something from scratch and having to develop and understand until you even can use the equipment sometimes you stand in front of the equipment and go hmm can someone tell me how it works? No, no one here. Okay, so you start learning. And I mean, these days, we, we, you know, we have access to so much information. You have the ability to actually learn stuff from scratch. And I, I know I say that because it gives me a sense of, it's a, it's a nice feeling when you realize you went from, I have no idea what's going on, to actually being able to carry out an experiment and all of a sudden even do something useful with it. Yeah, that's brilliant. It's just, yeah, just mind-blowing the way that you can just keep pushing yourself and expanding and challenging your knowledge. Yeah, and I think it's, it's I think what you have to do as a scientist, you can't take things for granted or, you know. And then I remember, I will always remember when, when I was a PhD student, I had this little quote stick stuck to the back of, of, my, of my desk, uh, which was a quote, I'm pretty sure it was a quote from Einstein, which said, um, if, if, it, if we were new what we were doing, it wouldn't be called research. And I really tell that my students all the time when they start an honours with me, an honours program, or interns when they're doing an internship. They, I tell them, when you do research with me in, in my lab, it means you're working on an actual research project. I'm not designing those, those, those experiments for you to, to learn. Yes, you are learning something, but they're not a, a teaching experiment. They're a real experiment that will hopefully contribute to my research in my lab. But that also means, quite often, I have no idea what's going on. Yeah. So <laughs> we have to figure it out ourselves. And I think this is what, what, what's the difference between, you know, learning in an undergraduate degree where there is experiments that are designed to work because we have 200 students that have to do the experiment. So we design them so they work. We know what data they get. 
And then you come into a research experiment where you go, hmm, I have no idea what that means. They come and see me and go, Evelyn, what does this data mean? And I go, hmm, I don't know, but let's think about it. <laughs> so it's that, it's that continuous process of, of, of knowing what's going on and having to work it out. And I think this is what I love about being a scientist. I love solving problems. At the end of the day, it's problem solving. It's good. Yeah. It, and that quote also puts everything into perspective because yes. you're not supposed to know the answers yet. That's what you're working on. Because, and I mean, uh, by definition, and, and again, I remember from my PhD, it's like the definition in Australia of a PhD, and now I'm assessing PhDs as well, is it's an original contribution to knowledge. So it's, it's original and it's a contribution to knowledge. So it ha if it has been done before, and if it's known, it's by definition not going to be what counts as a PhD. And therefore, and, you know, you need most people that do research have a PhD. So you are working in an environment where quite often you honestly don't fully understand. You have grasps and you have insights and then you keep building on it. But at the end of the day, you rarely really have a, a full insight because most of the time, one answer opens the box to 10 more questions. Yes, of course. And that's what drives research. And, and I think you have to learn to deal with that unless you like that uncertainty or not like, but unless with being in that bubble of uncertainty and unless you like keep pushing the boundary and wanting to know then that's when I tell my students that's why I think doing an internship is great during undergrad because it gives you that taste of research and some students go really I don't like not knowing what's going on all the time and that's fair enough I'm not you know research not for everyone but at least you have all of it and you learned and then you can go and comfortably say yep I don't really, that's not my thing. So going back to where uh, you went to do your PhD, did you do that straight from your honours or did you take a break? Yes, I went from my honours into PhD. I literally went to traditionally, you know, like in Australia, I did four years of undergraduate, one year of honours, four years of PhD, and then went straight into my postdoc. So I never... I worked outside of academia. Okay. Was that a conscious decision? Yes and no. I think I was actually recently, just recently reflecting on that because I'm part of a mentoring program at the moment where I'm the mentee. So I have a senior academic that is my mentor. And we were asked the question, so far in your career, have you been more following opportunities when they arise or were you strategic? And I always thought of myself as a strategic person, but I realized, actually, probably not. <laughs> following opportunities, you know, like, I liked research when I did my honours. There was an opportunity to get a PhD scholarship, so I thought, you know, I like hanging out in universities, so let's do a PhD. I knew I liked the idea of research, but I think I was quite, I wouldn't say naive, I just didn't think about what are you going to do after you of your PhD. I just went into a PhD because I liked the idea of, of four more years of doing research. Um, and then when I finished my PhD, I liked the idea of continuing. And so I was lucky to be awarded a fellowship straight out of my PhD. Uh, and I was able to go to the University of Queensland for a postdoc. And it just... It just continued it, that way. Yeah. Continued. Having said that, the challenges of continuing have grown massively. So, you know, the doors... I wouldn't say the doors closed, but the number of doors that can open 
the further you go in your research career, the number of doors available just become fewer and fewer. You have to realise that there is few positions, um, there's few tenured, you know, in America you would say tenured, here we say continuous or permanent positions. There's not as many of them around and there's lots of us who want to do it, so at some stage you need to think about where else could I use my skills? So where else could you use your skills? <laughs> uh, anything from, you know, there is research, actual active research in, in industry. That could be, in my case, more like most likely pharmaceutical and biotechnology industry. But there's all sorts of, of, of things, um, of jobs, where I've seen other people that did PhDs with me around the same time. They work in, some of them work in science communication. Some of them work in policy, policy advising and policy development for the government. So anything from state to federal government. Um, I know someone that works for Medicare. She works um, in a field where they need to look at whether something goes onto the PBS or not. I know someone that works in IP. So they, they work for IP Australia. They look at, you know, patent. People want to have patent in, this, in the field of chemistry. I know people that work for non-profit organisations. For example, someone that works for a uh, cancer council and uh, essentially needs to assess research, whether it's whether it should be funded or not by the Cancer Council. So there's all sorts of jobs where you can use your, use your skills. And that's just even things that are probably more obvious. I know people that went into working for finance, finance companies because you have a PhD in physics or chemistry. That means you're pretty good with numbers. So I have, yeah, I know people that went into the finance industry and work in business anal as business analysts. And that's an interesting they, deviation, yeah. Yeah, and it sounds... At first, you go, really? You're a chemist or a physicist? What are you going to do at you know, a bank or a financial institution? But at the end of the day, you know how to deal with numbers and you know how to do statistics. You learn quickly. Um, so you can actually work in fields that might not sound obvious. The hard bit is finding people that are willing to employ you because it's not that obvious. You know, if I'm a HR person in a finance world, someone with a PhD in physics isn't the most obvious candidate for a business analyst. So it takes a while to, it takes a while for you as a person from science to sort of articulate those skills and convince the people that you actually will be good at that. So I think that we are slowly moving um, towards being a bit more open-minded that people with PhDs in science don't necessarily have to do active research and academia. We are slowly moving towards um, realising that there is all sorts of skills that we have and we're slowly getting better at teaching our students. Just because you're doing a PhD doesn't mean you have to become an academic. And we've been doing, we haven't been doing very well as a, and by we I mean the royal we of us as an industry. We've been very focused on giving students the impression that when they do a PhD they have to become an academic. Um, and I think we're slowly getting to a stage where students get the message and get opportunities during their PhD to develop skills that they then later use outside of academic research. Uh, it can be, it can be hard. It, it, it can be hard to realise that I think I don't want to be in research, or I think there might not be a future in research. That's that's a hard process for many researchers to go through. No, especially after committing that many years to it as well. 
and you commit a lot of years to it, but I think it's also because it becomes part of it becomes part of of, of like you have this fixed idea of this is where I want to go, and all of a sudden some of you can't go there, and it's just normal human. It's natural. It's normal normal human behavior that all of a sudden you realize actually hold on, I don't want to go there, or maybe it's not that feasible to go there. And, and then to have to reevaluate is not easy, and particularly when you said you've invested a lot of time. And a lot of researchers, you know, a lot of us are very passionate about what we do. Very. So you, you, you do what you do because you love it, and then having to go reevaluate what do I actually do if I'm not an academic, it almost becomes part of your, it becomes part of who you, of how you yeah, think about it. Exactly. Your identity, yeah. Yeah, it becomes part of your identity in many ways, yes. So having to then reevaluate that is not easy. It can be very rewarding, and I know a lot of people that have very rewarding careers outside of academic research, but I can tell you that even those people, they have to go through a process of, all right, what am I actually doing? Who am I if I'm not a researcher? Who am I if I'm not an academic? Uh, And I think that's similar in many jobs where you have a passion for it. If you tell an artist that they can't live off their art, so they have to do something else as a, for a living, I think that be, they'd be struggling to identify who they are. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, okay. So, um, yeah, we might do the bonus questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, what hobby or interest do you have that is most unrelated to your work? Uh, most unrelated is probably yoga. Yeah. Um, I read a lot. Of, I also enjoy reading books and novels, and I enjoy traveling. But I get to travel, well, not at the moment, but academic, <laughs> I get to travel to conferences. And I love traveling and going into nature. But the most unrelated is probably yoga. And I don't mean that in terms of, um, I mean that because people are often surprised when, you, when you're when you a scientist, particularly when you're a physical scientist, and they they, they ask you, what do you do for your annual leave? And I go, well, I'm going to the Byron Bay hinterland to go to a silent meditation retreat. <laughs> you find that quite funny. Or, you know, I've been to India four times to study yoga. So I don't just, I love yoga. I love the physical side of yoga. So I, I practice yoga about five times a week. Um, but I also really love the philosophy and, and, and the psychology part of yoga. So I, I've been to India three, two, four times now, and three times of them I went to a yoga studio to actually study the philosophy of yoga, to study the Yoga Sutra, which is it was a, it was a large book that was written thousands of years ago. Um, I like studying the mindfulness part or the breathing exercises of yoga. So I really love the whole, the whole idea of living a yoga lifestyle rather than just doing the physical practice. And I suppose that can be unusual when you're a physical scientist. Um, For me, they're not that different because it's about inquiring. And I suppose that's why I like that part of yoga as well. I got into it for the physical part. I've always been someone that loves exercise. I I did gymnastics when I was a child. So when someone suggested to me, why don't you do yoga? Because maybe that helps you with your, you know, with your stressful job. Because at the end of the day, academia, academia, as much as I love it, it's a very highly competitive, highly pre- high pressure environment. And 
I find it sometimes very hard to, to decompress. And because I have a history of mental health issues, for me, it's very important to have a balance and decompress and, and not take the stress on too much. So for me, yoga, during my PhD, I started doing yoga. And it was great because it's a physical thing. I need to move. I'm a very physical, active person. But at the same time, you have breathing exercises. You learn how to focus your mind. You learn how to sit still, which for me yes. is incredibly hard. Very difficult. <laughs> still was the hardest part of yoga for me. Do you know, like the physical parts, but actually sitting still and focusing on my breath, that's very hard. But it's also incredibly beneficial for me. Just, it's so important to be able to, or to be able to have that balance between, you know, the still mind and the active mind. And it's only going to give you more clarity in your work. My mind is racing every day. Like I literally, you know, when you do research, as much as you enjoy it, the fact is your brain is on 100% every day and it's churning and churning through ideas. And, you know, you go to bed and your brain is You're still thinking. The research. And I, and that on one hand is what we like because we like the inquiry, but it can be draining. And if you combine that with the fact that it's often stressful, you don't, you know, you get papers rejected, you don't get fellowships, you don't know whether you have money for, for, your, for your students or to do experiments, that can be quite stressful and it puts you on a lot of pressure. And I think having that balance is very good because that yoga, you, you try to switch it off at least. You, you can't always, but very often, I practice mostly in the morning, so... Before work at 7 a.m., I'm on the yoga mat and I can start my day at least with a sense of being grounded and calm. And then at, at least there is a, it's a base from where you operate out of. Yeah. Well, it's a good way of starting your morning, having yeah. a clear mind, ready to get going. Yeah. And I also just think to have a distance, to, to, to realize that you get so sucked into this idea that if an experiment doesn't work or your paper was rejected, it's like your world crumbles. But then the moment I step on the yoga mat, I realize, you know what, it doesn't actually matter. I'm still moving. My body is healthy. My mind is healthy. And, and, and you appreciate that. And I think with yoga often comes a sense of you practice gratitude. Yes. You sit down once a day and you are grateful for what you have. And in my case, I sit on the mat and realize I have a healthy mind, I have a healthy body, I breathe, I have the luxury to go to a yoga class, and after that, I have the luxury to go to a job that I get paid for loving what I do. And that really brings it back to, to realizing, yeah, it's not always, you know, happy, happy face, it's not always uh, easy, but at the end of the day, I'm very very fortunate and, and, and privileged to work in a job that I love. Yes, you are. It's it's great to have that opportunity. Yeah. So that's why for me is yoga is is then really important for me as a not just as a hobby but as a way of feeding, nurturing not just my physical body but also my soul or whatever you want to call it. You know, some people find spiritual sense spiritual fulfillment in, in a religion 
that never meant something to me when I grew up in a Christian world, yet somehow I was able to connect to something from a different culture. And it gives me something, it gives me a sense of, it gives me a sense of calm and a sense of fulfillment that's not connected to my, my job as a researcher. And that, that's important to find that balance for me. Definitely, very important. And which childhood book holds the strongest memories for you? Um, probably one that I had as a very little child, which is about forest fairy tales. And I think it's because I always liked trees and forests. I still love trees and forests. I still love, literally love looking at trees. Um, and I really remember that book. It was one of these, you know, very thick fairy tale books. It was quite old back then already. My grand It was in my grandmother's place. Actually, it was in my book, my grandmother's book. And every time I went to visit my grandmother, I wanted to take it home. <laughs> you can't take it home because the other grandchildren wouldn't look at it as well. And I don't know, there's something, there was something magical, magical about the forest and the animals that lived in the forest. It's beautiful. Do you still like go out hiking and things like that around here? Yes, I do. It's, it's probably one of the things I miss the most about my country, about Switzerland, is hiking. And then, and forests. I know we have forests here as well, but they're, they're different. So when I'm in Switzerland... It's not quite the same, is it? <laughs> and I think it's funny because you learn to distinguish between them. When I've been to Switzerland and I come back to Perth, for example, the smell of the gum trees, uh, it's very different. I, I love that smell, but there is something about the... Particularly when you grow up, well, not grow up, but when you live in Perth, everything's dry and arid. But when you go to Switzerland, to the forest particularly in autumn or in spring, there is this, the, the soil is yeah, wet and the soil is heavy and there's a certain smell. It's very different. And the trees obviously are very different, like pine trees. Um, yeah, the sensory experience is very different. It's a very different different type of forest. And I, I miss the mountains and the forest probably the most, apart from certain food. <laughs> but yes, I miss, I, miss, I miss the hiking in the mountains. Well, maybe next year then. And lastly, what advice would you give someone who wants to do what you do and what advice should they ignore? To do what I do in terms of research, I think you almost, if I learned something by, talk, by looking at all the other people's careers and my own career so far, you really have to continue to reflect on what you want to do. You... you on one hand, you go along with opportunities as they arrive, but at some stage, you have to be a bit strategic. So I think I would tell someone from early on, by all means, go with the flow, but maybe at some stage, always keep in the back of the mind that you have something that is a bit more strategic or start thinking a bit more long-term. Advice to ignore... I would say that's not just about academia, that's just the way I think is if someone tells you do this because that's how it's done, because one does, I usually would say ignore the advice. <laughs> because unless someone can give you a very good reason of why something is done a certain way, if it works for you, by all means go for it. But if it doesn't, don't. Because I think there is no one correct way of doing things so I think 
always question why you do something and does it work for you. If it doesn't work for you, don't just do it because someone tells you so. Because there are so many ways you can have a career in research, in academia, or even outside of that with your skills. There is no, there is not a way of getting there. So I think you need to do whatever works for you. So by ignoring advice, I would say, ignore the advice in terms of listen to it, but if it doesn't work for you, it doesn't work for you. Then there's a point in, in, in following the advice. Yeah, and it, it's the same as your other advice. It's like always reflect on it, always think about where you are, what you want to do, and how that other information kind of informs that. Yeah, and and... and and quite often in academia, you, you, end up, you end up not really knowing how things are going to work out. There's a lot of uncertainty, not just in the actual science of the experiments, but, but it, because we often live on six-month contracts, 12-month contracts, we don't know where we're going to be in 12. Many researchers don't know where they're going to be in 12 months or 24 months. So you have to, at some stage, sort of, at least step back a bit and say, well, if I do X, what's the impact going to be? And does that work for me? Just because it works for other people doesn't mean... I'll give you an example. When I finished my PhD, I asked a lot of people, what should I do for a postdoc? And everyone, almost everyone said, oh, you have to go overseas. Now, I oh. have... <laughs> well, that's, that's what one does. That's how <laughs> most people that do their PhD in Australia, you have to go overseas. Now, don't get me wrong, going overseas is great. But then I actually started poking people a bit more in detail. So why? Why do I have to go overseas? And people go, oh, it's great for your personal growth. You get to learn how to live in a different country. And I went, hold on. I was 21 when I moved from Switzerland to Australia on my own without my family, with just my partner. Yeah, I think I can tick that box <laughs> in a different country. And people went, yes, you learn how to research, do research in a different way. Well, well, I can do that by moving to a different institution in Australia. So I decided to not go overseas. And the reason for that was that my partner at the time couldn't leave Perth because of his job. So we had a compromise that I would find a job somewhere in Australia, which meant, in my case, I then found a job in Queensland. So I was splitting my time between Perth and Brisbane. Now, that's feasible in Australia, and then I know a lot of people split their times between cities, but it's not so feasible when you have a job in America or Europe. And for me, I had to literally step back and say, well, why do people tell me I need to go overseas? And I realised... They mean well because they think I need to have certain experiences by going overseas. But I realized, well, I've done the whole live in a different country. And getting exposed to different researchers and different institutions, I can to some degree also do in Australia. Yes, it's still the same academic system, but at the end of the day, I think I got a lot of experience by moving to a university. But at the same time, I was able to split my time between Perth and Brisbane so that me and my partner could, could at least have some resemblance of a normal relationship. Yeah, and that's what I mean by, you know, people might mean well with their advice, but they don't know you or their circumstances. So don't follow it blindly. And I think what's important is then to ask them why. 
Why do they give you that advice? Why do they think doing X is the best next step in your career? And you start to realize maybe you can achieve X in a way that suits your particular personality, lifestyle, whatever it is, without following blindly that advice that might actually not work for you. Very important. Yes. Well, that's actually been very enlightening in all ways. <laughs> yes, I think you probably get a lot of enlightening insights from talking to other people. Yes, definitely, all the time. <laughs> and it's been, yeah, really interesting to learn about your work in computational chemistry and just the way that the research is conducted and how it applies to, you know, other things and other applications with other disciplines. You know, I love multi-dis. Multi-dis, I think, is so important for everybody. And, yeah, I think people forget that a lot of the work that people do, if we, even if they're in a focus area of research, involves other people and other disciplines as well. And I think these days the, the funding agencies are more and more realising that the big complex problems you have to solve interdisciplinary. Yes. I mean... The best example or least example that relates to my work is if you want to, for example, if you want to solve the problem of antimicrobial resistance. So people using too many antibiotics in modern life, bugs become resistant, we need new antibiotics, or at least we need to find new ways of using existing antibiotics in a smarter way. Yes. Now, most of these, when you think about these challenges, you think of drug development, biology, chemistry. But actually, just recently, a large project was funded, and UTS is involved in that project, as well as many other institutions. And it actually involves people in policy. It involves people in law, because there is a law behind when you're allowed to use an antibiotics and when not. It involves people from veterinary science, because most antibiotics are actually used in the livestock industry. It involves people that come from social sciences that look at why do people think that they need to get an antibiotic prescribed when they go to the doctor, even if the doctor says, I don't think the antibiotic is going to help you? There is this expectation that you get an antibiotic. So you need people from law, from policy, social science, veterinary, as well as the microbiology and pharmaceutical people to solve a problem that is very complex. Yes. And I think that made me, for the first time, when I heard of that first, I went, well, what do you need a lawyer on the project for <laughs> resistance? Yeah. And I thought, well, maybe it's about the intellectual property. And said, no, no, the law behind when you are allowed to use antibiotics and when not, maybe we need to look at the law. And so you need different aspects um, to solve multidisciplinary approaches to solve these complex issues. Mm. Definitely. I think people need to be more, I guess, cognizant of the fact that that is such an important part of everything that we do now, just the cooperation and collaboration with other people in order to get other viewpoints. To get other viewpoints, but it's also, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not easy in terms of it's challenging because all of a sudden you have a scientist that needs to talk to a social scientist that needs to talk to a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. And we speak, particularly when it comes to people that work in academia and are highly specialised, that's what we get paid for, we are highly specialised. But at the same time, we have really our own vocabulary. Yes. So when you talk to a lawyer or when you talk to a scientist, 
we use very different words to describe <laughs> our problems. So just having to establish a communication line can sometimes be quite challenging. I find it fascinating because I love working with different people, but you know, it adds to the challenge of your working day. It does. Well, cool. Okay, so thank you very much, Evelyn, for your time today. It's been really great to learn about all the work that you do. Very interesting to hear about all the interactions and collaborations you have with all the other disciplines and all the other areas that you work with. Um, so if people want to reach out to you to learn more about your work, uh, where can they do that? So um, on the website there, you have on the website you have left um, links. There's, there's links yes. on my, my LinkedIn profile. There is uh, links to my Twitter. So I'm quite active. I've just recently joined Twitter, but I'm quite active on Twitter in anything to do with science and particularly anything to do with academia in general. Uh, and my UTS University staff profile. There is a lot of information about our projects on on the actual staff profile. Okay, brilliant. Thank you so much for that. I'll put the links on the show notes and yeah, if people want to reach out, they can there. And thank you very much for your time. Yes, thank you so much for being here. Okay, thanks. The idea of interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary approaches is one that I feel is particularly important. So it's been fascinating to learn how Evelyn's background in computer science and chemistry led to her work in biophysics. It was also really motivational to learn about Evelyn's journey into academia, despite not initially completing high school, as well as hearing her advice about academic career planning. Even if you feel a door has closed to you, you never know what other opportunities and alternate paths might exist that can guide you in a new direction. To learn more about Evelyn and what we discussed on this show, or to connect with us, please visit the Steam Powered website at steampoweredshow.com. You can also reach out to Evelyn on Twitter at theplazasevelyn, as well as LinkedIn and her university profile, the links for which will be in the show notes. If you enjoyed this conversation and want to hear more like it, subscribe to this podcast and share this with your geeky or geek-curious friends. You can also support Steam Powered on Patreon and Ko-fi under Steam Powered Show, the links for which will also be in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.